it is, uh, it's good to come together and confess that. As uh, our elder Jay led us through the confession, that we are prone to think of sin uh, lightly. The sin in ourselves and the sin in each other. And uh, Christ then is our only hope as we struggle with the reality of our own sinning. Would you take your Bible please to Exodus chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. We'll read this section about God's instruction and the people's construction of the priestly garments. Exodus chapter 39. This is the word of the Lord. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made fine woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen. They hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns, and into the fine twine linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces, joined to it at its two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span in its length, a span in its breadth, when doubled. They set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, carbuncle was the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, onyx, and jasper. They were enclosed with enclosed with settings of gold filigree. There were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the son of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breast piece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. They made two settings of gold filigree and two golden rings and put the rings on the two edges of the breast piece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords and the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod and its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They bound the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And the breast piece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod, woven all of blue. And the opening of the robe in it was like the opening of a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell, and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, 
and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen, and a sash of fine twine linen, and of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied it to a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to children's church. If you have a sermon note handout today, you'll see that there's a picture of everything that I just read. And a picture is worth a thousand words, so we think the picture helps. If you don't have a handout and you'd like to see that picture, feel free to step toward the back. There are three racks in the back of the room that have the outline for this morning as well as a picture of the high priest's garments. I want, I want to note what you'll see in that picture and what we have described for us here is the attire of the high priest. Please keep in mind that there are priests who didn't have all these details in their garments, but were in fact clothed in white robes and uh, ordained or, or, or uh, decorated with uh, purple and scarlet and gold as well. What we have in front of us is a need to understand that everything God has instructed us up to this point, all of the details about the tabernacle, all of the instruction about worship, all of this attire for the priest is for a purpose. That purpose is made clear to us in verse 31. They wore across their forehead a plate in which was written, holy to the Lord. That's the nature, I'm sorry, verse 30. That's the nature of what's been described over these last 10 chapters. Exodus 39 continues an explanation of implementing these instructions that God had given for the people to build the tabernacle and to function in worship. That goes on from Exodus 25 to 31. One important statement that I, I want to draw your attention to is reoccurring. In fact, I think seven times in chapter 39 we read, as the Lord commanded Moses. Maybe as I read it a moment ago, you picked up on that. You said, wait, We've read that. We read it again and we read it again. As the Lord commanded Moses, which tells us a lot about worship and about what God will provide for us to receive as he has commanded. This chapter reminds us that the worship of God is always initiated by God. I think there is this beautiful picture in God's relationship with his people, where it is God who first initiates this worship. I think that is a wonderful picture. I think it shouldn't be overlooked. Here it is true. As God commanded, then the people did. True worship is responding to what God has called us to. Worship is then obedience. So in Exodus, Moses is responding to what God had called them to do. God had instructed them this pattern for access to him, worship to him, atonement, substitution, a confession of their need for him. So these priestly garments. Back in Exodus chapter 28, we, we read this. These garments are to be on Aaron and his sons, when they go into the tent of meeting and when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, they have to dress like this in the holy place before the Ark of the Covenant, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. I don't want you to miss that. So what's happening in 39 is the people are doing what had been commanded in 28. That, that's what's going to happen. So if you hear me refer to chapter 39, that's where we're at today. But if you hear me refer to chapter 28, it's because that's where all this comes from. But I want you to notice that when he talks about the priestly garment, he says they have to dress like this, lest when they come in, 
They are guilty and die. He doesn't say, doesn't really matter what they're clothed in as long as they've been on their best behavior. He says, when you come into this place that is the presence of my you know, Shekinah glory, that's the palpable, the, the, the measurable, the felt glory of God. When you come into this place, you have to have this covering. That's a point I want to drive home for us very clearly this morning. Because I, I don't intend to take Exodus 28 and Exodus 39 and talk about church dress code. Right? It's, it, is, it, is, it is shocking how often church dress is really culturally imposed. Whether it be the unchurched or the churched. And they say, well, church clothes should be like this and should look like this. And I don't intend to preach about church dress code from Exodus 28 or 39. However, there is a much more important message about our covering that we find here in Exodus 39. Especially in that final punctuating statement, all these things holy to the Lord. Matthew Henry, who is a Puritan who writes so accurately on this passage, and I'll quote him a handful of times this morning, he says this to start. These garments, in conformity to the rest of the furniture of the tabernacle, were very rich and splendid. These are all shadows of good things yet to come. But the substance of them is Christ, the grace of the gospel. And now that the substance has come, it is yet to be found in the shadow. Now that the substance has come, we who know of Christ can look back and see the wonder and the, the splendor of the shadows that pointed us first to Christ. So this morning, there are two parts to the sermon I'm going to deliver. There are two parts. The, the first is uh, very practical. It's this part about what is the priestly garment? We're going to walk through four parts of the priestly garment. Then I want to talk for the remainder of our time about the garments of new covenant priests. So the first, the garments of the priests in the Mosaic covenant, and then the garments of priests in the new covenant. Let me pray and ask the Lord to guide us in the speaking and the hearing. Father, I pray this morning that you'd be honored and in the way that the text is accurately represented, you, in all your wisdom and all your providence, you have kept for us this morning this chapter about the details of your priest's clothing. That must matter. And so I pray that we would humbly receive it from you this morning. But then, Lord, we know that in all of its detail, it is a shadow. And that shadow is clearly pointing to the covering that we all need if we are to be in the holiness of your presence and everlasting life. So I pray that those things would be clearly communicated and then carefully heard and discerned. And then that, that Christ would ultimately be the thing which we long for from Exodus 39. In Jesus' name, amen. The first part of these two is this mosaic priest clothing or covering. The covering of the mosaic priest. Look, look at the four parts. The first part is what's called an ephod in the first five verses. Now, there was something that was said in Exodus 28.5. It says that they had to make um, yarn of gold. Imagine if God came to you and said, all right, I need you to make gold yarn, pure gold yarn. This... This doesn't sound like something I'm cut out for, right? But we read here about how they did it. They hammered out gold leaf, super thin, and then cut it into tiny strips. And then as they made the yarn of purple and scarlet and blue, they interwove into that yarn gold leaf. So you, you have the ephod being made up of this radiant shimmer because of its interlacing of gold leaf. So this produced a checkered pattern that sparkled. I, I, I find it interesting. Do you remember when, when Moses was the only one who was allowed to go all the way up to meet with God? And when he came back down, what was his countenance like? 
It shimmered. It radiated, right? It was glowing. And I find it interesting now that God instructs them to make a fabric that's going to radiate and glow. So like Moses, whose countenance indicated that in fact he was meeting with God, the high priest is supposed to have a garment that indicates the same. Verse 6 through 21, there is a description of what we call the breastplate. It is a, uh, a square piece on the chest of the high priest. It's tied to the shoulders. It's clasped at the shoulders. And there are two onyx plates on each shoulder. On the left shoulder, there would have been the name of six of the sons of Israel. On the right shoulder, the other six sons of Israel. And the breastplate had four rows of na- the three rows of four names of the tribes of Israel, names of the sons of Israel. And they're engraved there in precious jewel. The breastplate having these 12 jewels representing the 12 sons of Israel. Now, not mentioned in, you'll appreciate this, Gary, not mentioned because he references this regularly. There are these mysterious stones. We think two because two are mentioned. The Urim and the Thummim. We're not sure what they are, They sound puzzling. We think there's two because there's only two mentioned, but it's possible there were three. And those are placed, according to Exodus 28, inside the breastplate. So the breastplate is a long piece of fabric that is folded in half. And in the crease, in the fold, these two stones would be set near the heart, Exodus 28 says, of the high priest. We're not sure what they are, and they're not mentioned here in chapter 35, but it's a really enjoyable study if you'd like to study. What is the point of the Urim and Thummim? Listen closely to what has been said about the Urim and the Thummim. The stones are called by some. The, uh, do you know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And here's how the Septuagint translates the Urim and the Thummim. The manifestation and the truth. The Latin Vulgate translates Urim and Thummim as the doctrine and the truth. Some have suspected that this was where the high priest would find an answer to a specifically challenging question. God, would you have your people do blank? And he would reach into this breast piece and pull out the stones. And if they were dark side up or light side up, that would indicate his answer from God. Just for a moment, you might think, I wish I had an Urim and a Thummim. And there are uh, an array of reasons why I would challenge you to treasure, in fact, the very word of God over the Urim and the Thummim. And so we have God's revelation and God's instruction for his people. In fact, so sufficient is the scripture that everything for life and godliness is contained herein. So he wears these shoulder pieces of onyx, And he wears this breast piece that contains on it the names of the 12 sons of Israel. These precious stones and these engraved names help us remember that the admission of the priest into the symbolic presence of God had to be founded solely on God's covenant with his people. There was nothing the priest was going to do to make himself acceptable to be in that holy presence had it not been for God's promise that he would have this people for his own possession. The names are a reminder of that. Imagine the the two squares on the shoulder pointing upward. God, I'm coming in, but I'm coming in because you promised that if we followed your instruction, this would be our relationship. So after the the breastplate in, in verse 22 through 26 we find a description of the robe of the ephod. Looms were operating and weaving was required to make the clothes extraordinary priestly robes. From chapter 28 and 29, we read these things. Finely twined linen was prepared, braided at the bottom of the hem, there was attached gold bells and pomegranates. Now, if you've been tracking with us, we've been trying to expound on those links between the tabernacle and the garden, and attaching fruit to the bottom of the garment seems to be consistent. And then the gold bells. It's not said here in chapter 39 why there's gold bells. That was true in chapter 28. 
the purpose of the bells, when the priest goes into the holy place, and if he dies and the bells stop ringing, they were to be pulled out by a rope attached to their leg. Attached to the bottom are these bells and pomegranates to be worn for ministering, and then again stated, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 26. Fourthly, the people constructed, as God commanded, the tunic and the turban. They would have robes, turbans, caps, fine twined linen of white, a sash made of blue and purple and scarlet. All of it, though, capped off by the the sort of keystone of the whole thing. Across the forehead of the priest would be a plate of pure gold on which would be the expression engraved, holy to Yahweh. That's the punctuation of all of these details. The altar, the curtains, the basin of water, the table of showbread, the golden lampstands, the the skilled engraving on the curtains between the holy and the holy of holies. All of it was pointing to this statement that the priest would bear on his forehead walking into the presence of God, holy to Yahweh. So this garment matters if that's what's being revealed and communicated. The emphasis of the section, holy to the Lord, as Yahweh commanded. It reminds us that this priestly vestment was designed by God, not Moses, not Aaron. This is designed by God. I wonder if you think this morning that what we do or what you do is designed by God. Or if we're left to sort of clever imagination. I wonder if you think that what we're doing, even in this moment, is in fact designed by God. Because the question is, what does all this detail teach us about our worship? Our worship is to be holy to Yahweh. I think it's important, as we read in chapter 39, as God commanded, as God commanded, as God commanded, as God commanded, because what had happened previously when God commanded. God commanded and they did not what God commanded. They made a golden calf. They made a small bull. Now, the the bull wasn't a different God, right? You remember? The bull was there to remind them, like, oh, God is good. He takes care of us. Look, like a strong bull, the one leading us out of Egypt. Thank goodness for power provisions. And it was wrong. God would not permit a syncretized this and that worship. But rather, holy to the... Do you know what the word holy means? Radically other than. Totally unique. The the worship of God is meant to be entirely apart from every other good thing. Because we worship the one best thing. So we come here to this section and we wonder about our worship. 1 Chronicles 16, 29 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, singularity, otherness. Not alongside, not with, not cohabitating. Holy. Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I can't help but remind you of something I read two weeks ago from David. Who may dwell in the hill of the Lord? Who has clean hands and pure heart? Who may come in to this worship of Yahweh? Only those who do as the Lord has commanded. Exodus 39 reinforces that central theme of the book. God alone determines how he is to be worshipped. They had really good intentions. They had really good intentions with the golden calf, I think. 
Moses has been gone a long time, and they're like, who? Are the people going to forget that God has a strong arm to lead us? Are the people going to forget that God will continue to give us this freedom and, and fulfillment of promise that he gave us? Are the people going to lose faith that they'll be okay? And so they erect a symbol of God's power. This reminds us that by earthly powers, God has provided. And I think their intentions may have been at least partly innocent, but they did not do just as the Lord had commanded. But here, in chapter 39, they are. God determines how we will worship him. He doesn't ask his people to creatively think up ways to approach him. But instead, he patiently and carefully explains it to us. Again, allow me please to reference Matthew Henry. It is intimation to all the Lord's ministers to make the word of God their rule in all of their ministry and to act in observance of and obedience to the commands of God. It implores the minister, this text, do as God commanded regarding worship. It implores the minister and all of their ministry to shape what we do according to his command. That, that practice of worship according to the word has led most of church history. Church history. Church history. Let me say the words again. Church history. I hope you understand that church history predates you. Church history is not 40 years old or 100 years old. But I'm talking about real church history. Most of Christian church history, this again is Matthew Henry. Most of Christian church history taught that the church should only do in worship what God himself wanted in his word. Only what the word led them to. And that means that the elements of our worship services are to be preaching, prayer, praise, scripture reading, sacrament, and giving. And not from our own delight or imagination. That was called in church history the regulative principle. So, just as God had commanded, most ministers in church history have thought, I think I should attempt to do similarly. And to go to the word and say, well, the word says I should do this, and I should do this, and I should do this, and I should do this. Well, yeah, but culture says you're going to get more people if you do this. And most of church history says, I don't think that's primary to us. And so we will be about preaching, praying, praising, scripture reading, sacrament, and giving, and not about our imagination. So that's the first point. What they were clothed in tells us about the nature of worship that God outlines for his people. Second, what about you? What about the new covenant? Priest, what are you clothed in? What are you clothed in? You probably gave some thought to what you wore this morning when you got up. And probably a myriad of things went into that. Is this clean? Does this match? Does this look funny? Probably all sorts of things went into what you were going to put on. And that's fine. However, it's not the point of the new covenant priestly covering. Just drawing from verse 30 and 31, the very interesting conclusion, holy to the Lord, confirms for us that the priest and the whole tabernacle is set apart to the Lord, given over to the Lord. And this is one of the most important points about the tabernacle. It is God's. It is exclusive. It is unique. It is holy. The picture not only points us to the nature of worship, as I talked about a minute ago, but it points to the admission 
to eternal life. The tabernacle represents the garden. The garden is heaven on earth. So getting back into the garden depends on our covering. As much as getting into the Holy of Holies depended on the priest's covering. I I want you to see, I want you to see that connection. And I want you to understand the imperative of what will you be clothed in. Imperative. Would you today be admitted into the Garden of Eden? Would you be admitted? We know that after the fall, sinners were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And in fact, to the east of the garden, there were angels set with swords of fire to keep sinners from coming back into the garden. So my question right now is, would you be admitted to the Garden of Eden today? And without answering out loud, you have your answer in your head. If your answer is yes, I want to reinforce that confidence. If your answer is no, I want to explain to you how you can be admitted back into the Garden of Eden. Let's start by taking our Bibles first to Matthew chapter 5. Now, for the next 10 minutes, we're going to jump around to a lot of new covenant descriptions about our covering. So be ready, okay? Be ready. You're going to go to Matthew two spots. You're going to go to Hebrews, three spots, at at least. Maybe there will be more coming up. Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 17 through 20. Here we see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is introducing a radical shift in covenant thinking. The popular opinion of the day was moral reconstruction, do better. And Jesus comes in and confronts that and opposes it. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not one iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most law-keeping legalist scribe and Pharisee, you can't get back in the garden. I wonder, do you observe God's instructions better than the Pharisees did? I wonder if you know the commands better than the scribes did. If your goodness doesn't outrun theirs, you don't get into the garden. However, Jesus is the everlasting reality which is typified in the tabernacle. And the garments of the high priest point to Jesus. Jesus is the one who's holy to the Lord. So here's, maybe I could say it this way. You might struggle today with the question, would I get back in the garden? The angels with swords on fire Would they let me by? Or would I be struck down as guilty? Now let me ask a follow-up question. Would Jesus Christ get back in the garden? Would Jesus get into the garden? Well, I, I think in the room we all at least have an inclination to say yes. Okay, then let's talk about our part in his mediation as our substitute. Matthew Henry, again. Christ is our great high priest. When he undertook the work of our redemption, he put on the clothes of service, he arrayed himself with the gifts of grace of the Spirit, he girded himself with the girdle of resolution to go through with his undertaking. He 
charged himself with God's spiritual Israel, bore them on his shoulders, carried them in his bosom, laid them near to his heart, engraved them in the palms of his hands, and presented them in the breastplate of judgment before his father. Lastly, he crowned himself with holiness to the Lord. Now consider how great this Savior is. When he goes before the Lord... He does it on our behalf. He takes with him the spiritual Israel of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cry and tears to him who was able to save. And Jesus was heard because of his holiness. Jesus went to the holy of holies and was accepted without condemnation because of his holiness. So that answers the question, does Jesus get back into the garden? Yes, because of his holiness, he does. Just as the tabernacle was a shadow shown to Moses at Sinai, he saw also the priestly attire. You remember when Moses went up to Sinai? And Moses did as God showed him. He saw a tabernacle, right? But an empty building? Or in it also a minister? Listen, did, did Moses see the high priest ministering in the tabernacle that was in heaven that Moses was to make a copy of? Did, did Moses see Jesus, clothed in righteousness and holiness, ministering. These priests that are described here in Exodus are fulfilling the Adam role in a micro-Eden. These priests dressed like this, they're doing Adam's job in a micro-Eden. Priests are to represent the new Adam, Sadly, we know that the priests failed. You don't have to read much farther in the account of the priestly ministry and you find that they totally dropped the ball. They're being killed. Access to the Lord is cut off by their sin and rebellion. And today, even now, there are some who would say, religion has failed us. I'll have nothing to do with organized religion. And I want to spend a moment going through six points that illustrate the fallacy of that idea. Being a part of a group is not going to be the answer. Some will say. And I want to point out how, in fact, organized religion has always been the revealed instruction of God. Adam is where it starts. The first point is Adam. The name Adam means humanity. Adam and Eve are priests before God, doing the priestly work in heaven on earth in the garden. When God first comes to Abraham and gives him the promise of a covenant, the promise includes a priest and a nation of priests that would be innumerable. Moses is the first high priest, interceding for the people. You remember, the people backed away. God invites the people at the base of Sinai to be a group of priests. All of you be priests. And they backed away and said, uh, no thank you. This is scary. Moses, you go in our place. And that's exactly what happens. Moses goes back and forth to God as a priest on behalf of the people. David, oh, what a great character in scripture, a man after God's own heart. David is in fact the great priest king of Israel. Where all of these fell short, Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, where all of these fell short, we are left with the conclusion that there must be a priest who had been revealed in heaven to Moses who will not fall short. 
And that brings us to Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, is the royal priest who had been promised. The high priest had been shown to Moses on Mount Sinai. Might I suggest, and I I want you to take this farther, as it's not the point of my sermon to you this morning. Moses stood on Mount Sinai and saw, I believe, a priest ministering in the temple. And he made, as he had been shown, a tabernacle including a priest. But Elijah also heard what the Bible calls in the book of Kings a low whisper. I think relating to the priest. He saw a whirlwind. He saw fire. He saw earthquake. And he came out and then he heard a low whisper. Now, why do I think that he might have heard something about God's Savior in the low whisper? It's from the next text we're going to turn to. Turn your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 17. And we'll see the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew's account of Jesus' revelation as the priest, Matthew tells us that Jesus' priesthood is revealed as his face shines as the sun, his robes are suddenly radiant white as if illuminated, and there standing witness to it are two men, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, who had testified, he is the faithful high priest. The law and the prophets had all said it. And Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, stand on the Mount of Transfiguration and finally see in first person what had been revealed to them. I think Moses, seeing the high priest functioning in the heavenly tabernacle or temple, and I think Elijah heard the voice of God in a low whisper say, my high priest will be faithful. Jesus is testified as the faithful high priest. Jesus, in his holiness, is heard by God, is accepted by God, is admitted into the closest communion with God. If Moses is the first high priest, the author of Hebrews is right to say that Jesus is much better than Moses, Hebrews 3.3. And as greater than Moses, Jesus lives to intercede for his people. That's imperative. Jesus lives to intercede for his people. Hebrews 7.25. And in the greatest act of love of any priest, Jesus offers his life a sacrifice for the people. Hebrews 7.27. He is worthy. He intercedes for the people by the very offering of himself as a sacrifice for cleansing them from sin. Making, number six, a nation of priests. A nation of royal priests in Christ Jesus. The followers of Jesus can, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. In Christ Jesus, his people approach God in the holy of holies, with confidence and freedom because of the priestly work of Jesus. Hebrews 10, when you get home today, Hebrews 10. I believe it's 18 through 25. This had been God's plan all along. At Mount Sinai, when God appeared to the people, they would become, as had been offered to the people at the base of the mountain who said, no, 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 this is terrifying. This had been God's plan all along to have a high priest who was faithful and true in Jesus Christ and in him to have a nation of priests to their God. In Jesus, one day we put on these uncorruptible robes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 56. This perishing, this mortal puts on immortal and imperishable. The bride of the lamb 
will be arrayed like radiant jewels. Turn your Bibles, please, one last time to Revelation chapter 21. Is this going to work? As Adam failed and Abraham failed and Moses failed and David failed, is this final high priest going to at last deliver his people? Revelation 21, 9. Revelation 21.9 says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That one united with the lamb in covenant, the bride. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, the north three gates, south three gates, and the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And in Isaiah 61, we read, I will, re- I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation and covered me with a robe of righteousness. Because of this faithful high priest... Covered in righteousness. We at last become what we were created to be. Shimmering and radiant royal priests in the kingdom of our God. One more time I'll read in closing from Revelation 7. After this I looked... Behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessed and glory, uh, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said back to me, These are the ones coming out of the tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are acceptable priests in eternal life with God back in the garden by the blood of the Lamb. So I asked you the question before, would you be allowed back in the garden? And maybe you said yes, by the blood of the Lamb. My righteousness is not my own. Mine is alien righteousness. It has been imputed to me. It has been poured out over me. And that's my righteousness. That's my admission back into heaven on earth. Maybe you said, I don't think I would be. I, I'm not a good person. I mean, maybe I'm better than some, you might think. But I know that if they were expelled for a sin, I would definitely not be allowed back in. Because mine is more than one sin. And so maybe you're left convicted and maybe concerned How would I get back into eternal life with God? How would I get back into heaven on earth, into the garden? 
And I want you to see clearly as we read this whole story about these priests decorated so impressively that that's a shadow that is for us this morning to consider and turn to Jesus Christ and say, how much more beautiful is his covering in holiness? How much better, how much more acceptable, how much more is Jesus than the tabernacle and its priest? In him only do we have hope in life or death. If you don't know what it means to put your trust totally in Jesus Christ, I, I just want to invite you when the service is over, uh, come find me, talk to people from our church, ask questions, and Lord willing, we can show you through Scripture how you can know that Christ is your hope in life and death. Let me pray. Father, <clears throat> what a wonderful picture. You describe the details of your worship. It matters to you. You're jealous for it. But ultimately, all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the rituals of our religion will fall short if ours is not the one faithful and true high priest, Jesus Christ. So to give us this text, which seems to just be packed with details, and then tell us that all of it is a dim shadow of a much better reality our high priest Jesus. And then, Lord, today that your spirit would work to both produce steadfast faith that, Lord, we are heading back into eternal life with you by the priesthood and sacrifice at Calvary of Jesus Christ. And then by your spirit for the folks who have come to be with us today who are not confident that they would be allowed back into holiness and fellowship of worship with you. I pray that your spirit would again draw them to Jesus Christ as their high priest. We pray this to you in faith, knowing that the preaching of Christ and your word would not return void. Amen.